Jenny Lynn. Good morning, everybody. Uh, yeah, so Jenny Lynn already introduced me, but uh, I'm very happy to be here, and I was uh, both excited and nervous and thankful when Pastor Dan asked me to preach, and he told me which passage I, I was doing. I was excited because I, I do enjoy preaching. It's an opportunity for me to grow in my own, own understanding of God's Word. I was nervous because it's been a while since I've preached, and also I haven't preached to such a, a wide variety of people. I was preaching to a youth group before, and I was thankful because he gave me this passage, and he didn't give me the passage that he preached last week on anger and lust. I, I didn't want my first sermon here to be on those topics and be remembered forever as the guy who talked about lust and anger his first time. Um, so we're continuing our sermon on this, uh, our series on the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, we're in a, the passage where passages where Jesus is talking about antitheses, where he talks about an Old Testament text or a tradition that was common in the Jewish community at that time, and then he talks about how he came to fulfill the law in a greater way. Um, and so I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to dive right in. Father God, thank you for this time that we can open your word and we can uh, learn about what you have to teach us. Help us all to be receptive to what you have to say to us through your word and speak to us clearly through it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. My wife and I sometimes watch a TV show every once in a while to relax. We rarely watch movies because we're always so tired from our three kids, and so we don't have time for a full movie, so we tend to watch just an hour TV show at a time. Uh, recently, we started watching the TV show Gilmore Girls. Um, yeah, I know. I, I just look like a guy who would just love the Gilmore Girls, don't I? Uh, but we have a daughter who's two years old now, and we thought it'd be a good way to get ready for when she becomes a teenager. Um, but if you're not familiar with the TV show, it's a TV show about a single mom and her daughter. They live in a small town in, I think, Connecticut, uh, and it's a rural town, but Lorelai and Rory, and Rory has just recently, we're only in season one, has just recently started going to uh, a prestigious high school called Chilton Academy, where she's preparing to uh, hopefully go to Harvard. It's her dream. But when Rory starts going to Chilton, uh, there's another girl there in her classes who just absolutely dislikes Rory. Her name's Paris, and she's kind of the top dog of the school. She's the best at everything she does. And she sees Rory immediately as a threat because Rory is intelligent, she's attractive, she's good at what she does, and she's got a good family, a good mom who loves her. So Paris just does not like her and is always attacking her and saying unkind things. And in one of the episodes, Roy, uh, Paris spreads some gossip about Rory and Lorelai, her mom, around the school. And she does this because she doesn't like Rory and she's jealous of her, but also because she wants to shift attention away from her and a controversy that's going on with her family. But later on in the episode, Rory and Paris have a confrontation. And Rory is given a choice, just like so many of us have a choice in a situation like this. She can respond in hate and payback and revenge, or she can respond in kindness. And this desire to payback that we all feel, that Rory probably felt, is as old as recorded history. Cain responded to Abel in payback by killing him when God accepted Abel's offering. The Greeks responded to Paris stealing Helen by invading and attacking Troy. Uh, the Count of Monte Cristo, one of the famous books, uh, books, he responded in payback by plotting for over decades and decades to pay back his friends who had got him in jail. General Maximus in the movie Gladiator uh, spent so many fights in the arena until the moment when he could have his revenge on the emperor who had killed his family. Most, more recently, Nike customers responded in payback by burning Nike shoes when they 
put Colin Kaepernick in advertisements. And all of us have seen or heard horrible stories about people who are so consumed by road rage when somebody cuts them off or does something that they don't like that they do very dangerous things with cars. Maybe some of us have gotten very angry uh, and had road rage. But this is the common human experience that we want to pay back or get revenge when we are wronged is our experience as well. Small insults, small wrongs, no matter what it is, we want to pay people back. This desire to pay back those who have wronged us or those who we perceive to be our enemies is part of the result of our sinful condition. While we may not take our revenge to such extremes as Cain killing his brother Abel, we also retaliate when wronged. We also hate those who we perceive to be our enemies. But in today's passage, we see how Jesus presents a different way. In his Sermon on the Mount, he is teaching his disciples to be a contrast community of salt and light. And contrary to the human desire for revenge and hate towards our enemies, he is encouraging his followers to live in generosity and love. And the truth is that we also can live in other-centered love because Jesus has prepared the way and he has given his life as a sacrifice. Now, this passage is very familiar to all of us if you've grown up in the Christian community. And as I was preparing this sermon, I just realized that I've heard sermons on this a lot. I've, I've heard this passage a lot. So it's very easy for us to become desensitized to these words. So I encourage you as you, we look at this passage together for you to just really think about it as if you're hearing it for the first time. We're going to look at the big idea of how we can live a radical-centered, other, radical, other-centered love-filled life in three main points. How Jesus calls us to move from revenge to radical generosity how he calls us to move from hate to radical love, and then we'll look briefly at how is this possible for us. So first, moving from revenge to radical generosity. Look with me in verse 38 of our passage. Jesus, again, he's, he's quoting traditions at the time or Old Testament laws, and he says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This is actually written in the Old Testament, and it's part of the Old Testament law, and even though it seems kind of brutal here, in the Old Testament context, it was actually a call for even-handed justice. At the time in the ancient Near East, people would receive disproportionate punishments for their crime. Depending on your station in life, if you stole something from a rich man, you could have your hand cut off. If you uh, struck a slave and you were its owner and the slave died, nothing would happen to you. But if the slave was owned by somebody else, you would have to pay that man money. But the Old Testament called for a different way even-handed justice for all. And that's present in numerous laws throughout the Old Testament. But here, Jesus is saying, you've taken this Old Testament law and you've twisted it to do the very thing it's not supposed to do. You've twisted it into a principle of revenge. And that what was common in Jesus' day. Um, so Jesus says, in contrast, that we're instead to live out radical kindness and radical generosity to those who have wronged us. In verse 39, he says, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. So Jesus calls people to not even resist the one who is evil to them, the one that sinfully wrongs them. And he gives another, a number of examples. In verse 39, again, he says, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. There's a common rabbinic saying at the time that if somebody slapped you on the cheek, they had to give you a certain sum of money. So Jesus is saying, don't get what is your due but turn to them the other cheek and allow them to slap the other one. In verse 40, Jesus says, and if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. So the tunic was the inner garments that people would wear, and the cloak 
was the outer garments. The cloak was more expensive, is more valuable. You really needed it at night because they didn't have heating in their houses, and so it would get really cold, even in the Palestinian desert. And so the cloak was valuable. And this also is actually referring to an Old Testament context where in Exodus 22, the people of God are commanded that if somebody gives their cloak to somebody as a, uh, a pledge for a loan, you are to return that cloak to the person at night so that they don't get cold and they don't die from freezing to death. And so Jesus is saying, even if somebody wants to take your inner garments, give them your cloak, your outer garments as well. We see, again, this principle of radical generosity when somebody is even wronging you. And then first, verse 41, read with me, it says, And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Some of you may have heard this, but at Jesus' time, there was a Roman occupation um, of the Palestinian area, and all of the Jews were being oppressed, um, and the other citizens as well. And a Roman soldier could require anyone on the street to carry their armor, their baggage for one mile. And the person had to do it, no matter what. And Jesus says, even if that person tells you to do that, go with them an extra mile as well. So we see in these three examples that Jesus is encouraging his followers to go above and beyond what somebody asks of them, even when it's sinful and evil and wrong. But in verse 42, it's a slightly different. He says, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So he encourages his listeners to give to those who are in need and ask for help. And so the combination of verses 39 to 42 is a call for radical kindness, radical generosity across the spectrum, both the, to those who are really in need and ask of you and also those who are considered to be doing evil and oppressing you. You're supposed to respond in radical kindness. Now, we might hear this and we might be, that doesn't seem right. Why should we let people just walk all over us? Um, this does not mean that we cannot protect ourselves or others from bodily harm or if somebody's trying to murder us, we just let them do it. The Bible preeminently values life. That's obvious in all of the biblical passages. One of the Ten Commandments is do not murder. Um, but this passage is specifically speaking about personal revenge and vengeance when somebody wrongs you. And Jesus is using somewhat extreme examples to drive home the point of how we're supposed to respond in kindness even when somebody's wronging us in a sinful way. This passage is not saying that we cannot seek to have a lawful ordered society. Love and generosity to others does not mean allowing them to avoid the consequences of their crimes or allow sin to thrive. That's not good for people either. To allow people to just continue in their sin or their crimes would eventually lead them to eternal hell and torment. So we want to help them see and see that they're doing wrong. There's an aspect of our response to evil or wrong, which is right and good. When somebody wrongs us and sins against us, our desire to pay them back points to the fact that we have a sense of justice in our hearts, that we want things to be right and good and true. It's not incorrect to desire justice, but it is wrong to want the person to suffer the way we have suffered. It's wrong to want to take that justice into our own hands and hurt them even more than we have been hurt. Um, this desire for justice is based on God's character. God desires justice. And as part of the aspect of seeking to move away from personal revenge, we need to all cultivate the, the hope that is revealed in the New Testament that God will bring justice one day for all the rights, all the sins that have been committed. I think a perfect and beautiful example of this is um, 
in a letter that was written by a woman named Rachel Denhollander. I don't know if you are familiar, but back in, I think, January of this year, uh, she was part of a group who helped bring charges against, uh, I think, the United States gymnastics doctor, Larry Nasser, who it has, it has been since he's been convicted and, and sentenced, but it's been revealed that he abused countless and numerous people in his time as a doctor. And Rachel Denhollander was one of those women, and he, she called for justice to be brought. And in the sentencing of him, she wrote a letter to him and to the judge, and she called for the judge to give him the maximum sentence possible for his crimes, which was basically the rest of his life in jail. Um, but she also wrote these words that I'm about to read. She wrote, Larry, you spoke of praying for forgiveness. But Larry, if you have read the Bible you carry, you know forgiveness does not come from doing good things, as if good deeds can erase what you have done. It comes from repentance, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you've done in all of its utter depravity and horror without mitigation, without excuse, without acting as if good deeds can erase what you've seen in this courtroom today. The Bible you carry says it is better for a stone to be wrapped around your neck and you thrown into a lake than for you to make even one child stumble. But you have damaged hundreds. The Bible you carry also speaks of a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach a point of truly facing what you've done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And, there will be, and it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me. So I extend that to you as well. That's just a short excerpt from that letter. It's a very long letter. You can read it on CNN, um, where it was published after it was read in court. Um, Rachel Denhollander advocated for the judge to give him the maximum possible sentence so that his crimes would be shown to be evil and wicked, which they were, but she also extended forgiveness to him in this letter and, and spoke the gospel to him. Um, she called for him to be sent to jail because that was justice, but she also extended him forgiveness, which is responding in this generosity and kindness that Jesus is advocating for. She didn't seek revenge by paying him back and having a desire for him to be hurt above and beyond what his crime deserved, but she sought a middle way of seeking justice and also forgiveness. So Jesus is teaching radical generosity to his followers. Instead of personal vengeance, they are to seek to extend kindness and generosity to those who have hurt them. Why do we turn to revenge and retaliation when wronged? I think that part of this is connected to a view of other humans that's sorely lacking in us as modern Americans. We don't view other people as beautifully created in the image of God, worthy of love, respect, care, and compassion. We don't react and respond to them as image bearers created in God's image. But instead, we see them as part of a group that is our enemy, a group that we don't agree with, and we respond to them based on those ideas rather than who they fundamentally are. So we need to have that shift in our view of who people are fundamentally. Now, a few of us will experience what Rachel Denhollander did and that tragedy, few of us will be under uh, occupying army like the, the Jews were under the Romans. So what does radical generosity look like in each of our lives? I just came up with a few ideas. I think we could think of countless numerous 
examples from your own individual lives. It would look like a gentle response when somebody says a hurtful thing intentionally. Could look like doing extra chores or helping around the house and cleaning dishes when you just don't have any extra energy to do that and you don't feel like it's your, your job to do right now. Could be responding to someone who is cold and distant by making them a meal. It could be foregoing the justice you deserve and it's your right just to show kindness to someone so that they could eventually come into a relationship with God. So Jesus calls us to move from revenge to radical generosity. He also calls us to move from hate to radical love. Read with me in verse 43, where he again cites the Old Testament law. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, this is a partial quote from the Old Testament. Um, the actual passage occurs in Leviticus 19, where, Jesus, or where God told the Israelites, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And if you notice what's quoted here, it's a small change, but a very important change. The as yourself is removed, and the hate your enemy is added. And so at Jesus' time, this was a common saying, and the people had, the rabbinic teachers had oversimplified the Old Testament teaching on how you were to treat your enemies and how you were to treat your neighbors, to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That as yourself is a very important element because we all are very good at loving ourselves. And if we were to love our neighbors the way we love ourselves, then that would be an amazing world. In contrast to loving your neighbor and hating your enemies, Jesus again presents a counter-radical example. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus transforms and fulfills the Old Testament law by moving it beyond just your neighbor to even your enemy that you're supposed to love as yourself. In verse 44, he commands love of enemies and prayer for those who persecute you. In verse 45, he explains why. He says, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. He roots this teaching in membership in God's family. If we're part of God's family, then we're going to live and act the way God does. And God loves even his enemies. In verse 45, it, it continues. It says, For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. God loves all of his creations, all the people, whether they know him or reject him. And he responds to each one of them by giving them food to eat every day, rain to bring the crops, sun to give them life. And that's how we are to live. Our love is to be like God's love. He loves even his enemies. And Jesus further emphasized this radical love by a series of questions to make his listeners think. In verse 46, it says, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Jesus is emphasizing the fact that anyone can love those who love them. That's not difficult. It, everybody does that. Everybody should do that. But Jesus' followers are not to be characterized by what everyone does. They are to be radically different, loving even their enemies. Shockingly different. Now, what does it mean to actually love your enemy? What does Jesus mean by love here? What does he mean by enemy? I, I'm going to put out my own definitions, and they're, they're just mine. They're not specifically from the Bible, but I think they're backed up by biblical uh, passages. I would define love as wanting the best for someone, regardless of who they are, what they have done, or how they think about you. Wanting the best for someone, regardless of any other reason, and making that best happen. That's God's example, isn't it? 
the epistle of John, 1 John, is often called the epistle of love. Love is mentioned again and again and again. In 1 John 3.16, he writes, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. 1 John 4.9-10, he writes, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the sacrifice for our sins. So we see love by God's example, by Jesus' example of dying for us, God's enemies, when there was no reason to. Now, enemy, I would define that as any person who doesn't want the best for us or who we don't want the best for. And this might seem like a broad definition, but even the dictionary defines enemy as the one who seeks to injure another. Um, and we might say, well, I don't, I don't really desire anybody to be hurt. I don't desire anybody to be injured. I'm just ambivalent to many people. I don't really care what happens to them one way or the other. But though we might not think we have enemies, if we honestly look at our lives, look at the disposition of our heart towards people, we'll realize that quite often our heart acts as if other people are enemies. Our bosses, who might ask us to do more than we feel like we really should, and maybe we are justified. Our children, sometimes, who maybe <laughs> wake us up in the middle of the night, night after night. Our spouses, who we're just tired of having conflict with. Our parents, our own parents, countless people who hurt us or wrong us easily without any apparent concern or care our disposition of our hearts towards them is as if they were enemies in how we think about them and how we respond to them, often in words or in actions. And the Bible tells us that we are our brothers and sisters' keepers. We are to be concerned with those who are around us, who are created in God's image. We, are to, we were made to live in loving relationships with all of those people. By calling his followers to love both their neighbors and their enemies, Jesus is calling them to love everyone that they encounter. So loving your enemy means wanting what's the best for those in all, in all of your life, in every area of your life, and making that happen. So Jesus is calling for a radical love that is modeled on his own love. And isn't this the attitude that's perfectly illustrated in the actions of Jesus Christ himself? Every one of us here were or are God's enemies, wanting nothing to do with him. But Jesus came lived the perfect life, died on the cross for our sins so that we might be reconciled to God. He loved us. He wanted what was best for us even though we couldn't care less about him and he made it happen. If you're like me, then you read this passage, you hear Jesus' call to radical generosity, radical kindness, radical love, and you're both encouraged and discouraged. Encouraged because you, you hear it and you see that it's beautiful and desirable. I want to live like that. I want the people around me to live like that. If, it, if we did, the world would be such a different place. But then you're also discouraged because you know how difficult it is to live that way. In your own life, in other people's lives, it's just difficult. So that brings us to our last point. How is this possible? How can we possibly live this way? Look with me in the last verse in our passage where Jesus says in verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Jesus commands his followers to be perfect. I hear that and I'm like, Jesus, what are you doing to me? I, I can't possibly be perfect. How is this possible? How can we possibly do that? We can't. We can't be as God is. 
And that's why many commentators on this verse note that this command is written in a tense, a verb, that is both a command, but it also contains a promissory element. This is not merely a command, but is also a promise. Not only you must be perfect, but you will be perfect. Jesus' followers are to look to their heavenly Father, who is the perfect one, for help. We are to look to God, the perfect one, for help. And our heavenly Father delights to help those who look for him. Our Father delights to help those who look to him for help, especially if it's something that, that he wants. I would like you to turn momentarily to 1 Peter 2, 21 through 25. It's on page 1015 of the, of the Pew Bible, if you, if you have that in front of you. If you don't, you can just listen. It's fine. First um, Peter, Peter's writing to a group of early Christians, and he writes to Christians encouraging them to love all people by pointing them to both the example of our Lord Jesus and the healing sacrifice that Jesus is. So Peter calls, in this specific passage, he's speaking to slaves. He calls them to submit to the authority of their masters um, by giving them Jesus' example. 1 Peter 2.21, he says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So Peter encourages his listeners, his readers, to look to Jesus, the one who did exactly what Jesus was calling them to do. Look to Jesus, the one who died on the cross for our sins. The one who, when people spit in his face, did not do anything back, even though he had all power to do so. When he was struck, he did not respond in kind, but went willingly to the cross to die for our sins so that we might be healed of our brokenness and be restored to loving relationships that we were created for. That's why I like our, the new name of our church so much, Restoration. It's some, a theme that I see throughout the Bible. God is seeking to restore us to the good that he originally created us for. We were created for loving community. We were created for a community where nobody would want to seek revenge and retaliation for wrong, but would love their neighbor as themselves, would love their enemy as themselves. There would be no enemies. That's what we were created for. And whether we realize it or not, we long for that every day. So God is restoring us to that. He wants to do that. And he will do that if we prayerfully come to him and ask for help in reliance and trust on the finished work of Christ. He will produce this fruit of radical kindness, radical love in us. A wonderful example of this can be seen in the life of an early Korean pastor, Pastor Son Yangwon. He was a Christian leader in Korea during the Japanese colonial period. Um, during the Japanese occupation, he refused to bow to the emperor and worship the emperor or bow to the Japanese Shinto gods. Um, and as a result, he was imprisoned for six years um, with other Christian pastors. When he was released, he went to a small co leper colony in Aeyongwon, which is in the south of Korea, to help and care for the lepers there because nobody else wanted to. And he was influential in helping other pastors who under Japanese occupation had denied Jesus and worshiped the emperor 
He was influential in helping them seek healing and forgiveness. Um, they were overcome with guilt um, because of their denying Jesus, but he didn't blame them and shame them. Instead, he pointed them to the, the forgiveness they had in Jesus. Uh, that time in Korea was a, a very uh, uh, crazy period when communists were all over the so south part of Korea and they often would take over small parts of the country. And in 1948, uh, local communists took control of the area where Pastor Son lived. Um, he was away from home on a trip, but his family was home. And a young boy, uh, scared of the communists, um, led them to Pastor Son's house. The communists were finding everyone who's Christian and forcing them to denounce Christ. Um, they captured two of Pastor Son's children, and his two sons refused to deny Christ and were murdered by the communists as a result. Shortly later, only, the, the, the period only lasted one week in this area. Um, shortly after that, uh, the Korean government reasserted control and recaptured the area, and they imprisoned the murderers of Pastor Son's children, as well as the young boy who had led, young man who had led them to where they were. Um, but Pastor Son went into the prison, and he sat down with the communists and talked to them, and he forgave them, and he pleaded with the government to release the young boy who had been forced to basically show um, the, the communists where his family was. Pastor Son not only forgave this young man, but this young man had lost his family as well, and he adopted him as his own son. This young man, Chason was his name, uh, spent the next two, three years with Pastor Son just being his son, living life with him, learning all about Christianity. And Chason's life was completely changed. And many years after the Korean War, he also became a pastor. But in 1950, when the North Korean communists invaded the South and captured almost the entire Korean peninsula before being stopped right outside of Busan, um, they, they came and captured the area where Pastor Son lived. And many people encouraged Pastor Son, you need to flee, you need to get out of here because they're going to find all the Christians and they're going to kill them. But Pastor Son said, no, I need to stay with this church, my church of lepers because who's going to take care of them if I leave? And of course, it happened exactly as people predicted. The communists captured him, they imprisoned him for a period of time, and they executed him. Um, and at his funeral, that young man, Chason, was the one that helped carry his, his body to the, the tomb. Throughout Pastor Son's interactions with others, you can just see this amazing love and other-centeredness. Despite many opportunities to respond in bitterness, anger, and hate, he did not give in to that, but instead responded in love. How could Pastor Son live this way? How could he have this perspective? Was he just a completely unique and rare person that we can't possibly hope to be like? I don't think so. I think he correctly understood that fellow human beings created in God's image are never our enemies. In Ephesians 6, Paul, writing about spiritual warfare, says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Fellow human beings are never our enemies. They're fellow human beings created in God's image. Satan, sin, death, those are our enemies. And that's how we should live. So I invite each one of you, if you... If you have not become a Christian, I invite you to think about this. Think about this radical generosity, this radical love displayed by Jesus Christ. Ask questions of whoever you came with. Ask questions of Pastor Dan or the elders. I invite you to believe in this Jesus who sacrificed himself for us. If you are a Christian, I ask you to pray. Pray that the Holy Spirit would work in your life and would help transform you. Um, time is up. I have a, some other things to say, but I just close with this quote that I love by C.S. Lewis. Um, 
when we think about the reality of how difficult it is to do this, I'm always encouraged by this quote about how we pray and then we also act. We don't just pray and then be like, oh, I'm not changing, oh well. But we pray and we also try. Um, C.S. Lewis says, do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. When you, be, when you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love them. If you injure someone you dislike, you will find yourself disliking him more. If you do him a good turn, you will find yourself disliking him less. C.S. Lewis is describing this act of loving people as if it's a spiritual muscle. The more you use it, the more you find yourself actually loving somebody. It's not just enough to pray and be like, oh, my heart's not changing. I guess I'll just never love these people. Act as if you actually love them, and your heart will follow your actions. So we see that Jesus calls us to be a contrast community. Instead of being characterized by revenge and hate, we are to be characterized by radical kindness, radical love, exemplified in Jesus. And we see that Jesus enables us to do that by his sacrifice, his healing sacrifice that he brought um, when he died on the cross. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for this time that we can open your word and learn from it. We acknowledge that this is not easy. We acknowledge that we can't do this on our own. We fail every day to love other people as we should. But we thank you that in Jesus Christ, in you, Lord Jesus, we have been forgiven. We have been healed. Our sins have been wiped away, and we are new creations. We pray that we might live that out in our lives with our family, our coworkers, our neighbors, our friends, strangers at Schnucks, that we might live the way you created us to live in loving community. Pray all, this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, we have a chance to confess our faith together. Um, I think these words come from the Heidelberg Catechism, number 86, and it really ties in really well with, with what we've just heard. Um, so let's, uh, sometimes I think it's just helpful to, to be able to confess it together and like, kind of preach this to each other. So I'll read the question and we'll, we'll read the bold together. Since we have been delivered from our misery by grace through Christ without any merit of our own, Christian, why then should we do good works? Because Christ, having redeemed us by his blood, is also restoring us by his spirit into his image so that with our whole lives we may show that we are thankful to God for his benefits, so that he may be praised through us, so that we may be assured of our faith by its fruits, and so that by our godly living our neighbors may be won over to Christ. It's good to be worshiping with you guys again. I've been away for a little bit. Uh, Unfortunately, I've missed the entire Sermon on the Mount series up until now. Um, but I got to read it this week, and um, you read it, and you're just like, this sounds so upside down. <laughs> like, the life that, that, the Sermon on the Mount is about God's kingdom, and it's about the king who calls us into, into the life that he calls us into, and it's, uh, it just sounds so upside down. It's like, how is this actually possible? How, how, how is this, a, a, like, is this even realistic? Um, and it, it makes us think, like, is, is Jesus upside down and we're right side up, or am I upside down? Maybe Jesus is right side up. And it, it just makes, me, it, it makes us think, um, because it just sounds so backwards to us. Um, but Jesus is an upside down kind of king. Uh, 
as we hear these words from, you know, about retaliation and about loving our enemies, um, we see that Jesus finds a way to break through our upside-down ways, that we are upside-down in our attitudes towards others, that we are upside-down in our desires. And where does, like, Jesus actually get the audacity to tell us to live this way? It's because he himself lived this way. You know, he was actually more than slapped. And slapped was being, it was an injury to one's honor. He was beaten. And he was shamed and humiliated. He was more than, he had more than his tunic taken, which was an injury to one's property. He was stripped naked. And he was emptied of all his glory. Jesus had to go farther than a mile. He had to go even farther than the next mile. He didn't carry a Roman soldier's pack. He carried the cross outside the city to Calvary's Hill. And he carried the weight, shouldered the burdens of all our sins on him. You see, he's an upside-down kind of king, and he showed that in this way of grace that there's blessing there, and he wants to invite us into it. And that's what this table is all about. Why did Jesus do all that? It's to make enemies into his friends. And this table shows that we have, we, you and I, who were once his enemies, have been made his friends. If this is good news for you, that, then this table's for you. And so on the night that our Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is the cup of the new covenant. My blood poured out for the remission of sins. Drink of it, all of you, and do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim his death until he returns. I'm going to pray and bless these elements for us, and we'll partake it together. God, we humbly come before you. We ask that you set aside these elements for your holy purposes. God, this life that you call us into sounds completely ridiculous unless you yourself have lived this life and you've come out being blessed. God, I pray that you would teach us your ways and that you would bring blessing into our life as we follow into this difficult call, into this kind of upside-down kingdom that you bring. Would you do this for us in Jesus? Amen. The way we'll uh, partake of the elements is the bread will go out, um, take a piece and hold it, um, and then the, uh, the cup will come out too. There's, uh, there's grape juice on the outer ring, and on the inner rings there's wine. Uh, there's also a gluten-free option if you need, so let one of the distributors know that you need that. Um, if you have not placed your faith in Jesus, if if you're not there yet to, to follow him into his kingdom, um, then let the elements pass by. There's no shame in that. Uh, we're glad you're here. And we, want, we ask that you would consider, continue to consider the claims of Jesus and, and consider that maybe, maybe that there is blessing in this upside-down king. Um, but for those of us who desire to become peacemakers, uh, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. Take and receive what he's graciously given to you.